The first passage is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servants is one. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The second passage is Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you again, Kemp, for reading God's word to us. And if you can keep your Bibles open um, at Psalm 19, that would be great. We're going through um, a short series of Psalms looking at life God's way. Uh, last week we started in Psalm 1, uh, the gateway to the book of Psalms, looking at two ways to live, what it means to be the blessed person, ultimately following Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that. And today we come to Psalm 19, which is interesting because the link between Psalm 19 and Psalm 1 is more about an action. We'll go into it when we get to verse 14, but you'll see there that David is talking about the meditation of his heart. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And we saw from Psalm 1 that the blessed person is the person who meditates on the word of God. So what we have here in Psalm 19 is an outworking of what it means to meditate on who God is, on his word, and our response to that. So we're starting to see these threads as we go through the Psalms. Next week we'll be looking at that famous Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. And then the week after Psalm 51, a, a psalm of 
penitence, of forgiveness, of seeking God in the midst of sin. I've got a picture to show you. Thanks, Frank. It should come up on the screen. Who's paying attention here? Um, For those that may be listening um, via the MP3 later, it's uh, a picture of Manly Beach in Australia in 2018, and there's a yellow sign there uh, in the shallows that says, Shark spotted today. Uh, uh, Be warned, advise not to go in the water. Uh, But who's in the water? There's plenty of hardy Australians just going for it in the sea, even though there's a warning that a shark has been spotted. They see the sign, they walk past it, but they decide not to act on it. And you know, there's a 24-7 advertisement going on every day of your life. It's more captivating than government health warnings. It's more beautiful than Apple products. It's more constant than Google ads. It's more thought-provoking than Meta or X. It's so commonplace we hardly notice it. But there are moments when it will take your breath away. There are no prizes for guessing its creation. Verses 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. To the ends of the world. Wow. When was the last time creation, nature, stopped you in your tracks? Last Thursday... I just looked up and I was struck by how blue the sky was and how white the clouds were and how green the grass in the park where I was sitting was. It just hit me afresh. A few years ago, Em and I were on a beach in Morgan Porth in Cornwall and uh, there was a, a little gathering of holidaymakers uh, on the beach, quietly enjoying the, the changing glows of the sun setting from uh, oranges and pinks as this sun was just going lower and lower and you could see the shore and the beach and the horizon and we were just sat there quietly watching this and as those rays faded to shadow for another day people clapped and cheered just spontaneously like but to whom interesting there was a response couldn't help it this beauty no speech no words no sound is heard from them Yet their voice goes out into all the earth 24-7. The grandeur of the sky and the stars, they draw us upwards, don't they? To something, to someone beyond. Uh, Creation's scale should humble us because it's declaring the greatness, the weight of God who made it. Human beings have been looking up at the sun and moon for millennia. But for the first time, humanity got to see the earth in its entirety as a blue marble, it was called, floating in space in 1972. Not all that long ago, really. That was when we were able to see it from the other perspective because of uh, the Apollo 17 mission. You can find those photos online. Captured our planet just suspended in black emptiness of space, isolated yet precious and fragile. 
Creation can make us feel insignificant, small, and yet as we explore nature further, the sun, the skies, the oceans, whether the water cycles, the ecosystems that abound, their existence consistently sings. There is a powerful maker who is beautiful and good. He created us. He sustains life day after day. Well, what does the sun tell us? Verses 5 to 6, where does David reflect? It's like a bridegroom, he says, coming out of his tent, his bedroom on his wedding day. He's looking forward to all that's coming, to the joy, the wonder, the, the celebration of getting married, of being united with his bride. There's an enormous smile on his face. Maybe some nerves as well, but more joy. And that joy is glowing, it's radiating, it's warmth. The sun makes a circuit like an athlete doing a lap. From our perspective, standing on earth looking, that's what's being described here. Sharing our joy with us in that lap of honor, day by day. The generosity, the warmth, and the light of the creator, his life-giving goodness is, is captured in that burning nuclear gas ball. I'm like this, says the son, because my creator is like this. Life-giving, powerful, sustaining, steadfast. Inscribed in Latin over the door of the physics laboratory in Cambridge, Andrew mentioned this last week, there is a statement. Not, it doesn't say physics is great fun, uh, nor does it say uh, leave your faith outside. But in Latin... The words of Psalm 111, verse 2 are written, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. Isn't that interesting? That those words are carved, you can see them today, in Latin, above the great doors as you go into that phenomenal place of study and work in Cambridge. They were chosen by the scientist and formulator of electromagnetic theory, James Clark Maxwell. The foundation of the Royal Society in the 17th century stated it would demonstrate the power and wisdom, the goodness of the Creator as it is displayed in the admirable order and workmanship of the creatures. Isn't that fascinating? The founding statement. This is seen in the writings of scientists like William Harvey, John Ray, who, who uh, historic scientists, but right through to the present day. Dr. Russell Coburn, who is also expert of nanotechnology at Cambridge, a committed believer. Or Dr. Jing Kong, who is the electrical engineering and computer science professor at MIT. She focuses her research on nanotechnology as well, and she states, the research is only a platform for me to do God's work. Isn't that significant? She came from an atheist background to come to know Christ and see fully his workmanship in creation. Her research is only a platform for me to do God's work. Wow. His creation, the way he made this world, is very interesting. It's amazing, really. That's slightly understated, isn't it? That's the electrical engineer in her coming out there. <laughs> One of the best examples in the New Testament of creation revealing who God is is when I think Jesus tells his disciples to look and learn from nature, from the birds. 
uh, of the air, from the flowers in the fields, Matthew 6, to see how their heavenly Father feeds them and clothes them. Therefore, how much more will he look after you? Look at creation. What does that tell you about your creator, your heavenly Father? Disciples, trust. He's got you. He knows what you need. And again, the Apostle Paul rests on the power of creation to give enough of a general revelation. That's what David's talking about here. A general revelation, a sign that God is real, that people are without excuse, as Paul puts it in Romans 1. You see, the Bible doesn't start by proving the existence of the Creator. It assumes it as unmissable as the mega flaming orange star we see in the sky. Wordlessly, it provokes us to consider the power, the beauty, the creativity, the sustenance, the joy of this created world. And all of it being the product of a joyful, caring, creative, powerful, personal creator. Many people can look at creation carefully. They can explore all there is to see and know. They recognize creation is wonderful. It's stirring. You hear Sir David Attenborough speak about it. It provokes emotional responses, and yet they still deny there's a creator. Or they're on the sidelines. They're agnostic about it. Because instinctively, as creatures who have turned away from our creator, we're suppressing that truth. The most obvious thing we will find anything else to explain it away. Instinctively, we want to be the center of the world. And we don't want to hear that there is a good and loving creator that we are accountable to. And King David, prompted by the Spirit, knew that the world is not enough. The world is not enough. You can see all this beauty and still go, oh, well, it's all about us. It's in our hands. We're the masters here. We'll have numerous theories that will tell us everything but there's a personal creator. We need something more. We need a personal word from God. And this is where his meditation goes. And you'll see the the pattern of the meditation goes deeper and deeper. So we've gone to the general revelation of the world of creation. And now we're going deeper to specific revelation. A word from God. So God's word in scripture, verses 7 to 11. There's no mistake that in this section, David uses the personal covenant name of God. That is Yahweh, the Lord. Have a look at it in the text. You'll see he uses the Lord now as the name from verse 7 right through to verse 14 seven times. He's getting personal. In in verses 1 to 4, the word there for God in verse 1 and again in 4 is just the very broad general L in Hebrew. God. Yahweh now is the covenant, personal, Lord over all. He is that El. He is God. But here we're referring to one who knows his people, who speaks clearly in a word. If you want to know who made you, how to live in his love, you've got to dive into his word. You've got to listen to what he has spoken. And in verses 7 to 9, there are six words to describe the scriptures. Look at them with me. We'll just go through them. You'll see them because of the way the psalm's laid out. You can see the repetition. 
reinforcing different angles on it. It's like looking at a picture at different ways. You're seeing the same thing and describing different aspects of it. So there's the law, the Torah, the first five books, but also the instruction that comes throughout the Old Testament, the law of God, statutes, precepts, commands, all different ways of speaking about how the Lord authoritatively tells his people how to live with him. Fear, that's an interesting one. Because it seems to switch there from uh, God's word it, it, in how to describe it and looking at it more like our response to God's word. Fear, reverence. As he speaks, we tremble. That's our proper response. And decrees, showing us again and again, the scriptures are of the Lord. They're from the Lord. They're focusing on his moral goodness as well. The Bible, you see, has commands. It has stories. It has examples. It has gospel narratives about Jesus. It has logical thinking. It has apocalyptic visions. So many different styles and genres. And we're wired, aren't we, to communicate with each other in different ways. And the Lord, in his creativity, knows this. He's the author of it. And so he's pleased to use different styles and means of communicating his word, his speech, so that we can learn his truth. But what's God's word like? If that's how it's described, what is it like? In seven words, David sings about the qualities of God's word, doesn't he? It's perfect. That is, it's blameless. It's with integrity. It's trustworthy and firm. We can rely upon his words. It takes the weight. It is steadfast. It's right. It is the plumb line. It is the rule book. It is objective. It will keep us on God's way. It is morally upright. It's radiant. Its truth shines out. It brings light to our thinking. It brings light to our actions. It actually changes us as well. That radiance. And it's pure. In Psalm 12, verse 6, David says, The words of the Lord are flawless. That's without imperfections. They're like silver purified in the crucible, like gold refined seven times. Basic, bottom line, there's no rubbish in God's word. There's no dross And it's a word that leads us into purity through Christ. So it's a beautiful and wise and righteous word. But what are the benefits for those who listen to it, who act upon it? What does the word do? You see, this isn't merely intellectual. It it impacts our feelings and emotions and actions. God's word is like a cool drink on a hot day. It refreshes It refreshes the soul. Literally, that phrase means returning to, repenting. The nefesh, the soul, the the being of us. Not just enlivened, but turned back to God. His word brings us back to life. And the Hebrew for soul means psyche, it means the self, It's, it's This this is a profound promise of God, that his word, the Bible, has the power to, to show us 
his truth, but to also restore us into our true identity. To give us the life we were meant for. And when we trust what he says, there is wisdom, there is joy, there's light to those who are hungry to take it. And if, if this is true then, when, when we read God's word, when we hear it preached, we should be listening, we should be trembling in one sense. What is he going to say? What's he going to bring to me today? Lord, I'm all ears. And even when I'm not all ears and I'm not with it, please get me on the, pro, get me on the right page. Get me there listening, intent. Because the God who brought all this creation to being is the God who speaks through this word, who, who in one sense lowers himself to speak in this word. And say, so you've, you've got me here, not in its entirety, but enough. Enough to be transformed and changed. And that word that brought the universe together, that brought Jesus back from death to life, that is the word that's at work in Scripture by His Spirit as we read and hear. What a dynamic gift. How simple yet how profound. That's why we find verse 10 such a bold statement, isn't it? That's why Terry and I chose it as the, the memory verse. The scriptures are more precious than the finest gold. They taste better than the most delicious honey. God's word is of more value than your house, than your ISA, than your annual salary, than your pension plan. As I was writing that, I was going, really, Pete, do you really believe that? You know, let's be honest. Do I really believe that? King David staked his life on it, and he had a lot more for him going for him and his portfolio than I do financially but he could see it doesn't hold weight this is the treasure and God's word makes your favorite meal the the most spectacular dinner you've ever had at sweet mandarin as wonderful as it is there's the shout out Helen and Colin but it makes that look like a snack a very delicious snack but God's word is the feast And David exalts, you see, in the preciousness of this word. It's a love song here. This is a motive. Is this how you feel, therefore, about the revelation of God that he's given of himself to you in his word? Do you see it as fuel to revive your soul, verse 7, to, to rejoice your heart in verse 8? Do you desire the word of God more than a 10 million pound inheritance? And all that it could purchase. All that it could change. Now, I know there are massive questions and significant questions about the Bible. How to read it. How to understand it. What bits are literal? How do we apply it? Isn't it just personal interpretation? There are so many questions and I get those. I understand them. I have them myself, and I have to keep going back and reading and studying and learning from other great people with bigger minds and brains who have thought about this stuff and can see the consistency and that the Bible does not fail. And there's other evidence, other authorities that sit under the Bible that back it up. 
But ultimately, we do have to come to say, will I take its word here as it intends? Will I trust myself to sit under this word of God and meet him here? On a practical level, one of the books that I do recommend, I was chatting about it with a friend yesterday morning over coffee, and I highly recommend Amy or Ewing's Why Trust the Bible. I think she writes brilliantly, and she answers 10 common questions uh, in this book. She gives robust but also pastoral answers to these questions, like, isn't it a matter of interpretation? What about all the wars in the Bible? What about other holy books? What about sexism? Uh, is the Bible out of date on issues around sex and sexuality? She handles these questions, important questions well. That, that shouldn't be an obstacle or a barrier for you to say, well, I'm, I'm just rejecting the Bible. You'll still have to do the hard work, but there are ways of handling those questions. Interestingly, um, one thing I want to recount from what she writes is a, is a personal experience she had. She says, smuggling operations exist with the sole aim of getting Bibles across closed borders and into the hands of those who want to read them. I will never forget getting off a train in the middle of China at 4 a.m. and making my way to a rendezvous with three Chinese church leaders. A team of us were delivering bags filled with Bibles which were distributed amongst the churches further north. When our Chinese friends unzipped the bags and looked inside, the tears began to flow down their cheeks. These books were so precious to them that they were prepared to risk imprisonment and persecution in order to get hold of them. I found it intriguing that the Bible should inspire such sacrifice and courage in the hearts of those who want to read it. Isn't that phenomenal? I had to read it just to slow myself down and stop and think. This is reality for millions of people. We've got Chinese Bibles there and there, just sitting there. No one ever thinks in putting these out, I'm going to lose my life or be whipped away or arrested. And I've never seen anyone walk past them with tears in their eyes, holding it such that they probably hold it more preciously than a baby child. Yeah? Do you expect that emotive response? I want that. I want that. Lord, will you give us that heart? Would you give us that hunger? We want to hear you. The sacrifice and courage in the hearts of those who want to read it. Lord, start that work in me. Start that work in us. But I don't feel like it on a Friday night. I just want to chill. I don't watch some stuff on Netflix. It's easier. Well, I scroll through Instagram. I'm in too much of a rush on a Monday morning to even enjoy the honey on my toast, let alone the word of God. Can I encourage you by saying, God knows your busyness. God knows your life. It's not like David was chilling out every day, getting everyone to run around after him. He was a busy guy. Moses was a busy guy. Jesus was a busy guy. Mary and Martha, they were very busy women. There was always a battle to hear God. Can I encourage you to say God knows your busyness. He knows your every day. He's sustaining you in it. 
It's not taking him by surprise. He's with you right there. And he knows what you need most in your busyness is to hear him. Is to hear him. Is to get his truth, his perspective, his sustaining power. His word is meant to be our food. You know, the prophet Jeremiah who actually found, I love reading Jeremiah, because he found sharing God's word really, really hard work. It was kind of the last thing on his list at points, and he's quite upfront and honest about this as well in in his book, in his prophetic messages. He found sharing it hard because it's really painful. He had hard things to say to people. They were true. And, and it would cause him emotional angst as well. He describes it as, as being the word of God inside him like a fire burning. And, and if he closes his mouth, it just bur- it burns more. He's got to speak it out just to get, you know, get the pain out, as it were. But listen to this as well, from his experience. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. You see, the Lord can use painful relationships, the busy workloads, the stressful family situations to drive us to his word. Perhaps rather in desperation, not delight. But that's real, isn't it? That's as real as it gets. In our desperation, go to him to hear. It's meant to be our food. It's the place we encounter his love. And perhaps you're familiar with Jesus' words fighting Satan in the wilderness, written in Matthew's gospel, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8. That was his foundation as he's fighting Satan, as he's, he's being given all the plan Bs and plan Cs that would look just as glorious. And Jesus is going, no, no, no. It is written. God has said. Even the perfect Savior, the Word made flesh, was dependent on his Father's written Word. A Word he was involved in inspiring as the eternal Son. Not only did he inspire it, he lived by it. He lived under it. He lived over it. He fulfilled it. He wants us to know his life-giving power. So can I ask yourselves three diagnostic questions? These are courtesy of Matt Smithhurst in his great book, Before You Open Your Bible. It's only 60 pages. It's one of the best things I've read. Before You Open Your Bible, Matt Smithhurst. Here are his questions. Do I approach the Bible more like a snack or a feast? What are your expectations? Twiglets or three-course dinner? Is it more accurate to say that you're willing to hear from God or desperate to hear from him? Is it a kind of, yeah, whatever, or I need this? I need this like I need ibuprofen when I've got a splitting headache. Am I just interested in scriptures or am I keen to internalize them? So you can read for knowledge and go, well, that satisfied something. But do you want them to take root, his word to do a work on you? I think that's a particularly hard one for Christians who've been walking with the Lord for many years. You know it. You've gone through it. The joy of coming to know him personally, of seeing everything so vibrantly like it's on high definition. Those years are past. 
You know, we're in the hard yards of the marathon, that sort of 18-mile mark, 20-mile mark, where it's just, I just want to die. Not that I've ever run one, but people tell me that's how it feels. But it's that point. Internalize the word of God. This is life-giving. This is for us today. If you're struggling to do this, here's a little challenge. Why not ask a Christian friend to commit together with you to read through Psalm 119, that hugely extensive meditation on God's word? 22 stanzas, if you did it, like just one stanza, a meeting. That's 22 meetings. That's almost half a year if you were doing it on a weekly basis. Just to read together, to ask, Lord, what is it you want me to see? Uh, Tim Keller and Kathy Keller give these three A's. You've probably heard them before. Adore. What is there in this text to, to praise and thank God for? How can you see Jesus more deeply? Adore. Uh, admit. What am I learning about myself as I read this? What are you convicting me of, Holy Spirit, to repent of? Admit. And then aspire. What, what did you read? What did you learn about life that could aspire you to ask for the Lord's help, to, for something to change, to act upon? Adore, admit, aspire. Just carry those around. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to show you. And if there are questions, if there are things that jump out, if there's something that pings in your head, I need to look that up, write it down. Then go and do the research. Come and chat to me or the other elders or your life group leaders or other believers. How do you wrestle with this? This is hard stuff. You see, the desperation and delight driving us to God's word is a work of his Holy Spirit. I'm sure of it. To, to find delight and joy in the scriptures is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a mark of the authentic follower of Christ. To want to be challenged and transformed by God through his word is the mark of a growing disciple, year after year. Not a complacent one. And that's why the psalm ends. With God's word having to do a work on us. God's word having to do a work on us. The word of God not only reveals who he is, but it also reveals who we are. It shows us as we truly are, sin and all. King David knows this all too well. Who can discern his errors? Verse 12, he's, he's reflecting on God's word. This, this law that he can read. The historic acts of the, the Lord in Exodus and how he's a redeeming God and yet the sin is just so blatant, it's there all the time. Who can discern his errors? You see, God's word has value not only because it is like a scorching sun that exposes us, it shows us what we're truly like and also, as a comforting word, brings forgiveness. Turns us away from reckless disobedience. A sign of God's work in King David is asking God to rule him by his Holy Spirit and not his willful self-centered desires. And this is the desire of all believers. And so the king sets us this example he leads us as God's people in prayer. His meditation becomes our meditation. His prayer is on our lips. And ultimately, this is the prayer that Christ fulfills. 
How is it possible to be blameless, to be innocent, to be acceptable in verses 13 to 14? How is this, how is this possible? Well, only through the king who fulfills this ultimately, perfectly, Christ, he himself who is the word through whom the whole world was created, John 1. As Jesus prayed this psalm, he lived the life that fulfilled it perfectly. He depends on God's word, revealing himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He who knew no sin, who only ever walked the path of obedience, who had no hidden faults, humbled himself even to death on a cross, taking the penalty of our sin, taking the faults, the willful rebellion on himself. He ultimately therefore became and is the Redeemer, verse 14 whose righteous life and resurrection is our rock, is King David's hope, is our life as believers. His words of eternal life, he has those words of eternal life. We hear him by his spirit, in his word. If, if you started yawning, Every time your best friend or your sibling, your sister, brother, or your husband, your wife, your mum, your dad, if you started yawning every time they started talking, how would that conversation go? Would it help if you explained to them, hey, I'm not really interested in what you say, I just care about you? It's not much of a help, is it? It's not much of an explanation at all. So as we close, Psalm 19, the way we treat the words of God, they reveal what we really think and feel about him. Approaching the Bible well is an act of worship. That's where we come full circle. We can have all the difficult questions that can be answered to an extent. We can have read lots of commentaries. We could have read the Bible a hundred times cover to cover and it still not touch us. Because it is an act of worship to hear God speak and say, Amen. Your will be done. Your word I need to hear. And I love the way the author, John Wilkin, puts it. You see, when you're, you're reading the Bible, when you're approaching the Bible well, it is an act of worship. It's walking on holy ground. And John Wilkin says, using the imagery from Exodus, the Bible is our burning bush. The Bible is our burning bush. It is where God wants to meet us. And his spirit will speak to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us hearts that are hungry for you? Hungry for your word to be fulfilled in our lives. To be people with open ears that listen, to build our lives on the rock that is Jesus Christ, his words the whole of scripture given for our salvation so that we can be thoroughly equipped as your servants for every good work. That, Father, may we have a lifetime of digging into this wonderful treasure, that these words are more precious than gold and that we would know that. It's preciousness, it's sweetness, we would delight in its refreshment for our souls. Keep our words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, Lord, always pleasing in your sight. Lord God, Jesus Christ.
our rock and our redeemer. Amen.